Welcome to The Big Deal with Glenn Ferris, episode 17. Today on the podcast, we've got Frank Dixon, and Frank is the chief of police for the city of Denton. He came to us by way of Austin about a year ago, a little over a year ago, and he is one of those rare people that you come across in life that is the same person in private as he is in public. Uh, He's the real deal. I've got an enormous amount of respect for him. And I think that really comes across in this uh, interview that, that we had with him. Um, and a little story about him. When he landed in Denton, I reached out to him pretty quickly. Uh, just as a business owner and resident of downtown for 13 years, uh, I just wanted to share with him a lot of the issues that we were facing that I thought he should be aware of as far as public safety goes. And over over the course of that lunch, we got to know each other and chatted quite a bit about what was going on. And what struck me about him is he's just a really good listener. Uh, he heard me out, heard all the uh, issues that we were having that are unique down here. And I was just really impressed with that. I was impressed with the way he listened and then uh, slowly uh, rolled out ways in which he could address a lot of those concerns and you know it's a work in progress down here and you know we appreciate our didn't police so much down here they really really do a great job with policing this area as the population grows especially in the nighttime with the nightlife down here and you know as a resident and uh business owner down here it really does feel like a safe tight-knit community and a lot of that comes from the way we're policed so in this interview you can really tell that he loves the city and you can really tell that he loves uh, the police department and uh, one thing we don't talk about because it happened a few days after this interview was the uh, incident this tuesday morning Uh, and of course i'm talking about where the uh, officer urbano Rodriguez Jr. was shot in the head and the leg, allegedly by a passenger of a vehicle that he had pulled over. And this is the first shooting of a Denton officer by a suspect in nearly three decades. Denton's a very, very safe city. But this is just one of those things that uh, just, it happened and it's incredibly unfortunate. And it was a normal traffic stop. And one of our uh, one of our finest ends up with these sorts of critical wounds, and it's just tragic and devastating. And fortunately, he is still responsive. Uh, the officer has a favorable prognosis. He's still alive, thanks to the quick thinking and life-saving actions of his partner. Uh, but you've got to think about this brave guy out there. You've got to think about his future. You've got to think about his family that depends on him. And you've got to think about the fact that these guys put their lives on the line every day to keep us safe. And we should keep those who put their lives on the line and uh, out there on the front lines and our thoughts and prayers. And especially this guy, this officer right now, as he begins to put his life back together and get back on his feet after this incident. Um, He is definitely in our thoughts and prayers and uh, just, you know, our heart just breaks for him and his family, but we're, you know, we're glad that, that he's, uh, fighting and still alive and, and hopefully can 
get on the path to recover quickly. And if you know anything about Frank, you know that the well-being of his officers is paramount to who he is. And so this really probably really hits home for him. You can tell in the the uh, press conferences that he's had about this, that this really hits home for him. Um, you can tell that he's got a passion for protecting his community. And I think that really comes out in this chat, even though that it happened before that incident, we talk about a lot of things. You can really tell that this guy has a real heart for Denton, a real heart for this community and couldn't have, couldn't have gotten a better guy to lead our police force. And he truly is uh, one of Denton's finest. Uh, follow him. Follow Chief Dixon on Twitter. Uh, his handle is going to be in the uh, description, but it's at Chief underscore Dixon 2746. Follow him on Twitter. And thank you so much for listening. Thanks for liking and subscribing. Follow me on all the social medias and glenferriscommercial.com. And without further delay, here's my conversation with Chief Dixon. So I was born at Carswell Air Force Base up in here for Fort Worth, the son of a Air Force Master Sergeant, and uh, grew up in a little bit in Fort Worth, Hawaii, Nebraska, South Carolina, and then on to Austin where we ended up retiring and planting our roots. So you were an Army brat. Yeah, Air Force or brat. Air Force brat. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's what that would be. So what did your dad do in the Air Force? Was he a pilot? or He was not. He was uh, enlisted, so he worked on... Uh, F-4 reconnaissance aircraft. That's crazy. That's what my dad worked on. Wow. That's world. nuts. Yeah, we didn't. Yeah, I wonder if they knew each other. So he was in, he was in, uh, golly, I want to say like 68 to 72. Okay. And, and he was stationed in Da Nang, 71 and 72, I think. They very well could cross paths. Yeah. So but that was kind of your first um exposure to like service really. it was yeah and so what gave you the idea to like because you eventually went into the marines i did so and, I, I come from a family of uh service i had an uncle that was in the army uh uncle that was in the air force as well so my family had a history of serving in the military so i knew when i was in high school i wanted to join the military but i didn't want to go in the air force i didn't want to go in the army I wanted to do something different so i chose more exciting a yeah. <laughs> i wanted to be a ground pounder yeah <laughs> so what kept you away from the air force i would have been i think i would have been like oh yeah that's <laughs> that's <seems> cool <laughs> i don't know i just i want to do something different so i went the uh, completely opposite way my my dad first laughed at me he's like do you know what you're doing I was like yeah i want to be in the marine corps he's like okay you'll regret that yeah yeah <laughs> were you good at school were you like or how was school for you i was good well i was good at school but okay. i was bored in school so gotcha. i tended to uh, be the class clown and get in trouble quite a bit how did that work out for you when you got into the marines <laughs> <laughs> it, it changed a lot if not for the marines i'm not sitting here today i'm either in prison or dead i'm sure pretty quickly yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. um so what was that like like you show up at boot camp and how old are you you're like 18 or so i was 17 my parents actually had to sign a waiver so nice. i could go to boot camp at 17 i had my 18th birthday in boot camp so no one's saying <laughs> you happy birthday no cakes 
Um, I, you know, to tell you the truth, I don't even remember the first 36, 48 hours. You fly out of San Antonio, Texas, was our military entrance processing station, which they refer to as MEPS. Flew out of uh, San Antonio, flew into San Diego, got on an old school bus. Next thing I know, the doors are opening up and welcome aboard Marine Corps Recruit Depot San Diego, and the rest is a big blur. Yeah. So is a in the movies they always have the the white little footprints on the ground that everyone lines up on. Did did that happen? Was very that real? much so? That's, very very that's, real. That's awesome. Yeah. So how was boot camp for you? Were you well? Did you do sports or anything? Were you athletic or? So I played sports Surely. growing up. I played football until high school. I played basketball and baseball. So were you always eight feet tall? I was. I was <laughs> so I went into boot camp. I was like six foot four, about one hundred and fifty pounds, Golly. soaking wet. Wow. Yeah, like we gotta feed this guy. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So you get out of boot camp. Like, what kind of what's happening in the world at that time? Like, what's going on? Are you? Is there like war going on, or is like what year was that? So that was nineteen eighty nine. So while I was in boot camp, there was a a big earthquake that happened uh, around San Francisco. Okay, about that time. That's right. The, the Oakland A's were playing the World they Series. Were. I remember watching that. Yeah, I don't remember watching that. You were. <laughs> you were World probably Series. doing push-ups yeah. somewhere. <laughs> I was. I was sweating profusely, yeah. getting yelled at. But uh, they did come in and tell us about the earthquake because you have, you know, going into the military, you're serving with a, a wide variety of people. The diversity chart is like off the charts. Yeah, they take a lot of people. Like, so, yeah. you know, you're not segregated to anybody. So we had recruits there from California, right down the road in San Francisco. And we did have a couple that were affected by the uh, the earthquakes their families were. So, Gotcha. So, but at that time there was, I mean, what was the military doing at that time other than, I mean, it was pretty not active. Like pre-9-11, there wasn't too many conflicts happening in the world was there? There or? was not a whole lot going on in 1989. Was um, that before, like, Bosnia? and? It was. Bosnia was okay. right around 92-ish. Okay. And then the Gulf War happens. Right. Like, so what, what were you doing at that time? Did you, were, were you deployed anywhere? Or? So when I was in uh, boot camp, they give you your assignment, your duty station assignments, kind of towards the end. And... Uh, they were given, like, I was in 0311, which is infantry. They're giving your first duty stations, and I signed up to do some Marine barracks duty. And uh, they said Annapolis, Maryland, the Naval Academy. I'd never done any research on the Naval Academy, didn't really know what it was and what we would be doing. So myself and one other recruit got that. We get on a plane. We fly over to uh, fly into Baltimore, Washington International Airport about 2 o'clock in the morning. A foot of snow on the ground. <laughs> we have a. We take a taxi into Annapolis and uh, pull up to the gates. There's a Marine sentry standing at the front gate, and uh, that's our first welcome to the Naval Academy, which ends up being a very prestigious Marine barracks duty. Wow! It was a sister barracks to uh, Marine Corps Eighth and I. If mm-hmm. you know anything about the Marine Corps Eighth and I, is a. Uh, the oldest post in the Marine Corps, stationed oh. in Washington, D.C., where the Commandant of the Marine Corps lives. That's crazy. So we were like a sister barracks to them. Okay. We did all of the uh, security aboard the Naval Academy. We did uh, ceremonies. We did funerals. Wow. Guarded the crypt of John Paul Jones. Who's that? 
Who's that? Is he a drummer? <laughs> <laughs> he was a famous drummer Jones. from the 18th century. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's crazy. Really good time there for two years. And during that time, the Gulf War started and ended very quickly, which right. we were we were happy about. Uh, we did have to uh, deploy to bring back some of the few service members that died because they all come back to uh, Dover Air Force Base, mm-hmm. where the Armed Forces Forensic Science Center is. Uh, and after that, uh, I served about two years there. Then I went to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina where I went to 2nd Battalion, 2nd Marines, uh, Infantry Battalion, and deployed to the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, actually on our deployment, we went to Yugoslavia. Little known fact, about that time, 91, 92, there was a small skirmish in Bosnia and Yugoslavia, mm-hmm. and we did have to go over there for a little bit. That was like kind of a peacekeeping thing, like a referee. The There was like ethnic cleansing or something going on at that there time, was. I think. A lot of bad stuff going on. How long were you over there? Uh, we did a six-month tour over in the Mediterranean. Got to see a lot of beautiful country over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spain, Italy, Sicily, Israel, uh, Turkey, Africa. Got a lot of places. See the world. Over there. That's awesome. So were you digging it? Were you like, I'm going to be in this forever? Or kind of what was your what was your feeling about it? So growing up, I always knew I wanted to be either be a firefighter or a police officer. Uh, mm-hmm. My One of my uncles that was actually in the Air Force ended up being a homicide detective in Washington, D.C., working for Metropolitan Police Department there. And growing up, I always heard stories from him about Baltimore. Being a, yeah, Washington, D.C. So, oh, okay, D.C., okay. And it was right at the time the cocaine wars broke out and there was Jamaican drug gangs running through the streets of Washington, D.C. <laughs> it was like the murder capital of the world. And, yeah. Uh, hearing those stories, I was always fascinated by <laughs> That's it. That's amazing. Let's do so that. So I knew I want yeah. to be a cop or a fireman. I saw the 100-foot aerial ladder that the fire trucks had, and I decided that chasing guys with guns would be safer than climbing a 100-foot ladder. <laughs> like, so. Not for me. Already tall. Already tall enough up here. Yeah. <laughs> I have an aversion of heights. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> gonna use that later (laughs) so okay that's awesome so uh at what point do you decide to make that switch and how does that transition happen like you're in the military and you're like one day you you've got to retire from the military to go do something else what what was that like so you have a four-year contract so early 92 i knew i was going to be getting out in 93 so i started looking for jobs um, I looked at Okaloosa County, Florida, right around Destin, which at the time was not the hustling, bustling vacation destination that it is today. Absolutely gorgeous. You're like, where's the nicest beach? It was very <laughs> nice. Uh, so I looked there, and then I looked back here in Austin because my family was here, and I put in applications at both and ended up getting hired by the Travis County Sheriff's Office in Austin. Upon my separation, at the same time, I was still going through the process with the Austin Police Department. And uh, it's been a year working at the correctional facility out at the county jail, which is uh, interesting, to say the least. Oh, wow. And then got hired at the Austin Police Department and went over there in 1995. Tell me about working at the uh, the jail. What's that like? 
So I worked in the maximum security building. So you, robbers, murderers, people end up uh, transitioning from county to state penal facilities. And uh, it's a different, very different environment. I mean, did you know what it was going to be going into it? Absolutely, or were you, you, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> or were you like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll do that. Got to get in. Got to get my foot in the door. Yeah. Were you excited to be there? I was excited. Mm-hmm. And uh, much to my surprise, I'm walking through a cell block one day, and someone calls out my name, and I'm thinking, who knows me here? Well, it turns out it was a friend of mine from high school. No way. Going back and telling you that everybody has – they come to that crossroads in life, right? So some of the people I ran around with in high school ended up uh, – one of them's in there oh, for man. aggravated robbery and ends up going off to Texas Department of Criminal Justice for 20 years. Dang. And, uh, yeah. That's awkward. Did he pick on you in high school and now they're like the tables have turned? <laughs> <laughs> no, we were actually friends in high school, okay. <laughs> so it was all it was all good. Paid off. I mean, how uh, – because the guys that I've met that – do that are like working in the jail like denton county over here right they strike me as adrenaline junkies was there any of that aspect to to that job like i mean you're i mean bad things can happen in jails and you got to get in the the thick of it absolutely you have a lot of adrenaline inside of a jail but one very wise older correctional officer told me very early on that Make no mistake about it, the inmates run the facility. We're just there to kind of keep the peace. What does he mean by that? Well, you can go in there as a officer that is heavy-handed, that uh, stands behind his badge and throws his authority around, or you can treat them like human beings and give the, show them respect. They'll show you respect. And I found that through my year out there, if you treated people the right way, no matter what they were doing, they would extend the same courtesy back to you. Wow. So you're only out there a year. I was. And what happens after that? So I go to the Awesome Police Academy okay. in January of 1995. Oh, so you can be in the – oh, yeah, I guess that does make sense. You're at the jail. You're just kind of – you're a guard. Right. Basically. Right. But that's kind of your foot in the door to get into the academy probably. It was. So yeah. different department. So I ended up resigning from the sheriff's office and went over to the city okay. police department. Uh, started the academy in January '95 and graduated in July of '95. Gotcha. And then you go directly into Austin. You're you got a beat. I did. I was assigned to Northwest Austin, coming out of the academy, and uh, you spend about 12 weeks riding with a field training officer mm-hmm. or a collection of field training officers, and you go through phases of your your field training, and uh, at some point you get cut loose towards the end. And that is probably the scariest day of every cop's life when you show up to work one day and they tell you, congratulations, you've gotten off of field training. Here's the keys to your car. Go be a cop. Wow. So the first time ever you're in a police car by yourself, you've had all this training. Now it's on you. And you spend the first hour praying that no one calls you for a a radio call for service. (laughs) So what is – Northwest Austin like or at that time how would you kind of describe that area it was two distinct worlds there was a extreme poverty in one part of it where there was housing projects a lot of uh, street drug trafficking prostitution like what, and gangs what area was that 
Uh, so, because we're, I mean, I'm kind of familiar with all kind of 183 Lamar area, Thurman Heights, if you're familiar okay, with that yeah. French embassy apartments over in that area. Mm-hmm. And then you go at the time, Mopac was brand new, Highway 183 that is now known as a highway was a two lane highway that stretched all the way out. There was no Lake Line Mall, so the uh, furthest out. You could get you were actually in the sticks when you got out past like uh, Anderson Mill area yeah. if you're familiar with Austin. Mm-hmm. But that side of town was very wealthy, very well to do, so very two distinct uh, worlds. Oh, the further you got out, it got nicer, like the suburb. It did basically, and then yeah. like closer toward the center of Austin was where it was rough. It was. So two distinct worlds. And what was that like? Just like your, what was kind of your most common thing that you dealt with out there? So I had a fascination with dealing with street gangs when okay. I got out. So that, that was something I took a passion in. And I really worked to not just enforce on them, but learn about them, learn about their culture, learn about their leadership. And uh, wow. yeah, a lot of really good intelligence comes from working street gangs. And just knowing the streets. You where, did gotta, that, where did that come from? Why do you think you were fascinated with that? I don't know. You know, there's a lot of correlations to street gangs, biker gangs, any type of gangs. You have the same kind of camaraderie that you have that you could see in military or police culture, mm-hmm. albeit for a different purpose. Right. So it's really interesting to me to when you're talking about human beings and the dynamics of group culture, looking at that. So, yeah. So what uh, – what was the type of like uh, thing you would deal with the most out there? I guess. I mean, which like with the street gangs, like what were they doing? How would how would you? Uh, they would. What sort of things were they doing that you would t- step in and have to like start regulating? So we're still having open air drug markets, open air prostitution. There were still some drive by shootings, but not as many as the late eighties. Okay. So every once in a while, you'd have a drive by shooting, some wow. homicides. That never was on my radar but it was there very much so organized gangs i mean you talk about downtown austin i-35 was the great divider of austin east austin and west austin yeah so things out east especially like 12th and chacon area which i would spend some time in my career out there Mm -hmm. was probably the epicenter of open-air drug markets in the city of austin that's crazy wow yeah, I guess, I guess like being a kid, I was just oblivious to that stuff. It was just, you know, I wasn't involved in any of it. So it was just sort of like, oh, those guys over there right? clearly selling crack. or what? So what was the drug out there at the time? What were they? Crack, co- crack cocaine was huge. Really big huge. at that time? Yeah. Wow. So, okay, what what kind of year was that that you were down there doing the, the stuff in northwest Austin? What so, years was that? Uh, 95 to about 99 or so. Okay. Then I went to East Austin and worked out there for a couple of years. Uh, went to Northeast Austin, where I spent about a year on patrol there before I promoted to detective. Okay. And then uh, when I promoted to detective, I went straight into narcotics. So is that kind of the trajectory for most folks? Is you start kind of a normal patrol, get an area, you work that for a while, they move you around a little bit, and then like eventually you work up into a detective office? So for us, you had to spend a minimum of two years on patrol before you could take a test to become a detective. It was actually a civil service rank. Okay. So you would take a test and then promote. I chose to spend almost 
eight years on patrol before I tested. Um, and I want to work in different parts of town to get to know my city. So I chose to, to move to Central East Austin and Northeast Austin and then took the promotional exam and scored high enough to promote. And my first assignment was narcotics as a brand new detective. Well, at this point in time in your head, were you like, I'm going to be police chief someday, so I need to get, just spend time in the classroom? <laughs> you know, or Absolutely not. Really? I, I was a... <laughs> No I was idea. a street cop wanting to do, do I want to chase crooks. I want to chase bad guys and going to narcotics, getting to be undercover and do some <laughs> undercover drug deals. And wow. I mean, that was, that was fun <laughs> working. And That's that would awesome. be kind of my launching pad into working in organized crime for five years, uh, spent a year yeah. in narcotics and then four years in the gang unit. Well, I'll scroll back. How, how hard is it to, uh, to do the, to take the test or to the, to pass the detective test, like, was that a big hurdle? Are you studying for that? Are you taking it? Do you have oh, to yeah. take classes or something? Or, like, kind of describe that process. So they test you over uh, general orders, which is, like, policy for the department, uh, state law, penal code. And then there's typically a couple books, like criminal investigations or another type of uh, literature that's kind of based around detective or investigative experience yeah like the philosophy of right being a cop basically yeah so you study for that you go on it's a hundred question multiple choice test and at the time i don't know a couple hundred people took the test i ended up i think uh, on that one number 11 or 13 okay on the list and uh ended up promoted and just by luck got assigned to narcotics because awesome. you kind of feel vacancies throughout the department wherever you're needed gotcha and i was lucky enough to go into narcotics and uh so do you think your experience of just being a uh, patrol officer helped in that test because you were coming at it from like like i've, I've been doing this for you know how, how many years was it uh eight years at that almost, point almost almost eight years almost at eight that years point. So, so you've got all the experience to back up like okay let's learn the theory real quick but like i know how this is uh, going to work in the real world. So, you know, you know that stuff kind of really well. It, do you kind of credit that to why you did so well on the test? No, I, you know, I think it's a combination of a lot of different things. Uh, you're told as a police officer in any department you go into, your reputation as a cop starts in the police academy. So people start watching you and they start talking about you as a cadet. Then as a, a street cop, Everything that you do kind of goes upon building that reputation or tearing it down. Right. I was always cognizant of that in the back of my head. And I always had tremendous role models, both on the street and in investigations. And at the time, I wanted to go and be a, a gang investigator because that was kind of the thing that I was into the most. So uh, kind of my short-term plan was at some point to do that. So when you uh get your detective badge like and they're going to assign you at that point are there more desirable spots generally or like you just wanted to do narcotics and you got lucky and you got into it that that way was there like okay we put our top people in narcotics or something like that is uh, there anything like that you know typically being an entry-level investigator you're going to go to like a general investigations type assignment where you're working thefts, burglaries, some robberies. But at the time, we had a, a robbery unit that people wanted to go to. I think every detective should aspire to 
go to work homicides, being a murder cop is probably one of the most satisfying and rewarding parts of any investigator's career. Hmm. And then, of course, why is that? Well, you're put number one. You're you're speaking for people that can no longer speak for themselves. You're seeking justice, not just for them, but for their families, right? And no matter what someone has done in their life, no one deserves to be have that life taken away from them. So, I think that would ultimately be the culmination of my investigative experience of going to a homicide after working in a gang unit. And uh, that's probably one of the most proud parts of my career is being a homicide detective. That's awesome. Have you seen The Wire? I have. So how close is it to that? <laughs> Extremely close. Really? Yeah. So they kind of nailed it. They did a very good job. So you're sitting around in the cubicle, the phone call rings. You got to go out and start investigating. It's the ultimate puzzle. Yeah. You get called out to a scene, they find a someone shot in a grassy field, and it's up to you to put that puzzle together. Oh, man. That's crazy. So what was what was kind of the... What was the case like you were most proud of that you like knocked it out of the park? Like, what was that? Mm. I don't know if there's one any single case. The first time that, uh, so when I first go to a homicide, I walk into a unit of very veteran homicide detectives and some of the best to ever do it. And they were very, um, very strict in their culture there. You dressed a certain way, you carried yourself a certain way. There was an extreme level of professionalism. There was never gonna be a phone call that came in that the new guy did not jump aboard and go out and help. If you did, you wouldn't survive in that unit. Um, and catching my first murder, going out and working that, getting a suspect, bringing them back to our office, putting them in an interview room, and then looking at the veteran detectives and asking them who's gonna go in there and get the confession from them. And them looking at you and smiling and saying, you are. Yeah. That's yeah. one of the most intimidating That's times. That's why you're here. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. That's a pretty intimidating time, walking into a room, sitting across the table from someone, kind of at the distance that we are right now, yeah. and getting you to confess to committing a murder. Golly, do they train you for that? Or like, what sort of skills do they give you to get something like that out of it? Because it's a sales job, really, ultimately. <laughs> So, I mean, you're trying to get them to, like, admit to, you know, you're trying to get them to the table to deal, basically. It's a combination of a lot of different things. You go to some interview and interrogation schools so you can read body language and look at cues and hints from yeah. people. But the majority of it is you establishing a rapport with someone. Um, and it all comes down to communication and, and just human beings in general. Yeah. Very rarely have I seen someone that's committed a murder that doesn't want to tell you what they did. How so? As human beings, it's just innate in us. Really? You've committed the most heinous of crimes, and no matter how bad you want to keep that in, deep inside you, you want to tell us that but you like, did it. Like in what way? Like You're carrying that burden with you, right? Yeah. I mean, you know that you've take someone, <laughs> taken someone's life. And by the time that you're in our interview room, we have already gone through processing crime scenes, talking to witnesses, hopefully tracking down some other things. And at the end of the day, science doesn't lie. Gotcha. Right? I'm glad I didn't kill anyone this morning because yeah. I'd, I'd have to tell you. Now. 
Man, that's crazy. I never thought about it like that. So when did you pick up on that? Did you pick up on it from like the veteran guys? Did they kind of clue you into this? Or is that something you just came to after talking with enough guys? It was a you know mixture of both. Watching a lot of these veteran homicide detectives go in there and talk to people and seeing how quickly they establish rapport, gotcha. getting people to talk, and just the way that they went about it is really fascinating. When you, when you stop and think about it. What are some of those ways uh, that you could build a rapport really quickly with someone who's, like, not happy to be locked up in the or, you know, in an interrogation room? Well, trying to come down and put yourself in their shoes, right? And sometimes it's finding commonality where there isn't any. You know what? Glenn, I can understand how things went wrong while you were <laughs> arguing with your wife. And sometimes things go really bad, but now's your time to tell your side of the story. Yeah. And if something happened that you couldn't control, it's okay. Yeah. Time to come clean. Yeah. That's crazy. It's That's cool. awesome. So you love that part of it. I did. What What did you love more? Did you love like getting on the scene, putting the puzzle together, or did you like the the human interaction of the interrogation and getting getting the right guy in there and and like hitting a home run there? The thrill, the chase. I mean, the adrenaline that would come at that 2 o'clock in the morning phone call when you're you're mm-hmm. asleep and they tell you you've caught a murder, that adrenaline goes through the roof. Was there anything that surprised you about human nature when you were doing this? Because this is like, to me, this is kind of cutting to the core of like, you know, evil and good at the same time. Yeah. Like you can see some of the worst. You can see some of the best. When you're dealing at this level with people, was there anything that was surprising to you? Well, I think, you know, in general, police officers on a day-to-day basis see things that human beings should not see. Working in homicide, you just see that facet and you're more deeply ingrained in it. So just seeing how bad someone could hate another human being to do the things that they do to them. Mm -hmm. But probably the most surprising is sitting across the table from two individuals, completely different cases, where I saw pure evil. Yeah. I I mean, they did not confess. And uh, you could just look through their, almost look through their soul. Oh, man. And that's a, uh, when the hair on your arm starts sticking up when you're sitting across from someone. It's like the real deal. And you're talking to them. <laughs> that's pretty chilling. So what do you do in that situation? I mean, does that, do you ever come up across someone who like got in your head? Like. No, not got in your head per se, but. uh I did have a couple of occasions to sit across from people that by no stretch of the imagination would they take my life if they could. Oh, man. So, yeah. Wow. Interesting. That is interesting. Did you find that part of the job hard? Did you take it home with you? or Absolutely. Yeah. You're not going to find very many homicide investigators that don't have a, a combination of medical problems. I yeah. mean, you're going... At times, we were run 30 hours straight yeah, trying to put down a murder as you're following leads. yeah, You're not eating healthy. You're not sleeping right. The stress is unimaginable. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can't imagine sitting across from a family that's lost a loved one, and now it's up to you to bring them justice, and the weight of the world is literally on your shoulders. How did you deal with that? Eating poorly, <laughs> sleep, sleeping poorly, yeah. um, gaining weight. Yeah. Man, that's crazy. So 
where did you go from there? You're at you're at homicide. How many years are you doing that? I spent three years in homicide, and then uh, my partner and I at the time decided collectively that uh, we were going to take the sergeant's exam, and we both took it, both passed. And, and what was the what kind of put that idea in your head? Just well, let's let's take the next step. What's the next rung on the ladder? Uh, or well, was it like I'm, we're, we're kind of done seeing murder? <laughs> no, you know, at the time, my partner and I planned on staying in homicide the rest of our career. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a change in our unit. And uh, at some point, you have some creative differences with leadership in there. And, and then it's up to you to be happy or not. Gotcha. And we felt at the time that we were going to be happier promoting and, and moving on. And that was probably one of the best things that come out of a bad circumstance for me personally is mm-hmm. promoting to sergeant because that that is really where the most uh, the most effective leadership in any police organization comes from. It's going to be from a sergeant. How much do politics uh, come into effect and in that sort of dynamic? Like in my head, I'm thinking The Wire right now. There's a lot of politics in the in that show. David Simon, the guy's a genius. <laughs> he is a genius. Um, I need to go back and rewatch that. I think I've watched it twice, but now's a good time to revisit that one. How much does that come to play? I mean, you're kind of playing the game. There's a little bit of a rat race. Not a rat race, but, you know, there's a political game you kind of got to play. Even internally in the units, if you don't carry your weight, then you're not going to cut it there. That's where it starts. That's like level one. You got to right. learn how to play that game. Right. Um, it sounds like you were also maneuvering strategically when you took that sergeant's exam yeah Um, very much so you know homicide detectives are very passionate about their cases so they want to work their cases because your name ultimately is going on every facet of that search warrants arrest affidavits confessions so your name is really going on every piece of paper and if i'm going to put you in prison and hopefully get life or more then I want to make sure that I'm doing it right. I want to make sure I'm putting the right person in prison because the last thing I want on my conscience is putting somebody in prison that doesn't belong there. And also, you're probably uh, testifying in the trials. Absolutely. And if you get up there and something's wrong, you're kind of, you're in, I mean, you're in the hot seat. Yeah, they're not going to ask for your chief of police or your lieutenant or your sergeant to come on the stand and, and explain why your case has gaps in it. It's up to you. Yeah. So, yeah. So you uh, so there's a test for sergeant. There was, and you take the test, do well on that. I did. I was lucky enough to uh, think I scored uh, number nine on that test, and ended up promoting a sergeant and spent a year out at the Austin International Airport. And at the time, we were consolidating the airport police had been their own police department, but we were consolidating them and the Parks Police Department into the Austin Police Department. So I spent a year out there kind of helping transition police officers from the airport into Austin Mm -hmm. and learning about the airport operations, which was something I did not think I would enjoy, but I ended up really enjoying the the year I spent out there. So what does a sergeant do? What does that mean? So you're a first-line supervisor. You have a shift. At the time, I had a shift of 10 police officers, and you're responsible for their coaching, mentoring, development, um, accountability. That's a big word that people would like to throw around in, in all facets of uh, police work now. But it's really trying to help your 
your cops grow, keep them safe, get them home, ultimately to their families. So what was some of the big challenges at the uh, airport? So you're taking dynamics from a police department that it worked exclusively at the airport, and now you're bringing them into the 11th largest city in the country. Mm-hmm. So you're going from a very secluded portion of the city to now from the richest parts of Austin to the most uh, economically challenged. You're asking police officers to spend some of them their entire career out at the airport, working in an airport environment to do metropolitan policing. And there's a big that's a big curve. But for like, some. like, what are we talking about? Like in the terminal? You're, yeah, right. Okay. So, so what happens in the terminal? I mean, what's going on there? Because they have like uh, the people who check your bags and all that stuff. Right. There's TSA. TSA. Out at yeah. the airport as well. But for the law enforcement purpose, you have police officers in every airport that you travel to, whether it's a DFW, yeah. Love Field, wherever. You have police officers out there because you get disturbance calls out there, unruly passengers, assaults. I mean, almost all of the crimes that you deal with in an inner city happen in an airport environment. Right, because it's I mean, different. Yeah, it's like a bus station. Might as well be a bus station. Same thing, you know. Like right. you've got a bunt, you've got condensed people in an area. Stuff's going to happen. So, right. what was kind of the number one thing out there? And did you have an office out there? Was there, was there like a little command post out there or were you driving to the airport every day to patrol the terminals and then come back so we had a building on airport property that was that housed the airport police officers that were out there and i want to say at the time we had about 60 police officers in total out there okay about um 24 hours a day seven days a week so we would have officers stationed at fixed checkpoints in the airport they would have some that were roving around, driving and walking and such. And then as a supervisor, you just walk around and check in with your police officers to make sure they have everything they need and make sure things are going smoothly. What's the craziest thing you saw out there happen? Uh, so I'm sitting in my office one day. Uh, one of my police officers calls me and says, Sarge, we need you over at the terminal now. I'm like, okay, what's going on? Well, a, a container alarmed in the uh, baggage scanner from TSA. Well, that's not unlike it's not like atypical for that to happen. So I'm like, okay, what's what's up with it? Well, it's about it's saying it's about ten pounds of explosives. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, well, that'll wake you up. That's a problem. <laughs> so we go over there, and uh, a gentleman had come through with literally ten pounds of what turned out to be like bean paste. That was coming up as the. But it has nitrates in it oh. that activates the scanner. And when it alerted, the TSA officials asked him what was in that container, and he said, a bomb. Well, if you have something alarming to nitrates, and then you have somebody saying a bomb, yeah, you got to Why conclude, did he say that? That's like the last thing in the world you say at an airport. Like, uh, yes, it is. Why did he say that? Was he... Uh, and what is he doing yeah. with 10 pounds of bean base? Well, he was taking it back. It was it was actually <laughs> something that he was taking back for his family, which no big deal. I mean, you just tell him it's bean paste, and this is what it is, where they I got it from. Bean and paste, and uh, you, let, you let it go. Yeah. So we end up evacuating the entire top floor of the airport. We shut down air traffic. 10 pounds. Which I, that would have yeah. caused a crater. Yeah. Uh, TSA oh. wasn't too happy with me at the time as a – Sergeant walking in and shutting down the airport because as I would quickly learn when you shut down an airport, 
there's a domino effect. <laughs> a couple of planes are going to be late now. And yeah. every minute that those planes are sitting still, there's a lot of money that's being lost. But you have the possibility of a 10-pound bomb. That was my exp- explanation. And little known fact that, again, that I didn't know as a newly promoted sergeant. I guess I've been about eight months on the job as a sergeant. When you shut down a major airport, your uh, event winds up in a White House briefing <laughs> so there's well, yeah, a lot of because, people that are getting notified of that. It's not a small thing. Beca- yeah, because you're also holding up planes that are trying to land. I mean, like, it right. affects the whole... There's a long domino effect oh, across wow. the country. Wow. So we had the airport shut down for about two and a half hours until our bomb squad could come out there and clear that package. But and that wasn't on you. That was the guy saying, it's a bomb. What was right. his explanation at the end of the day? Like, what... Um, what, why was he being? You know, I think he was just upset with the the arrangements and having to go oh. through TSA checkpoints and. But the, the he ended up showing up as yeah. like, oh man. But we ended up arresting him for t- making a terroristic threat, and yeah. wow. ultimately he was convicted for doing that. Wow, what's the penalty on that one? Uh, I don't know what he ended up getting, and you know i get it Tra- travel's frustrating right yeah. going through airports sometimes can be frustrating but not knowing the consequence of saying it's a bomb and right Golly. and not realizing the the domino yeah. effect of saying that yeah because we can't just take for you know your word after you say something like that you've got 10 pounds of something that mm. could very well be any number of explosive materials right wow alarm and nitrates yeah that's crazy. So bomb squad came out and had to defuse the bean paste. Well, they came in and they had to x-ray it and go in and clear it. Wow. Which is dangerous in and of itself. I mean, can you imagine as a bomb tech going down there and having 10 pounds, yeah. and 10 pounds? So. Yeah, there's no amount of anything that can, if that goes off. Yeah. Like, yeah. Wow. So that was pretty fun. That's, <laughs> I mean, you, you enjoyed the. I mean, were you dreading the next time you were going to have to shut down the airport? I mean, no, I <laughs> or wasn't. you felt good about it. You're like, oh. you know, I didn't feel good about it. But at the end of the day, we're talking about people's safety, right? Yes. Yeah. You inconvenience people and you cost a lot of money for a lot of different air carriers at the time. But at the end of the day, we're talking about keeping people safe. And if it had gone the other way. Exactly. I'm not saying would have. Oh, yeah. It would have been bad for, yeah. for everyone. Wow. Yeah. So you're doing the airplane or the the airport thing. Uh, you like that? What happens after that? I then get uh, transferred into special operations, and I spend a couple of months with our patrol canine program, and then I go to our SWAT team for three years. Oh, cool! So that's kind of uh, that's kind of coming full circle, right? On uh, the narcotics, and I mean, isn't it? In that kind of it is kind of yeah. kind of the same, only different. Yeah. Well, so what's that like? What's being on a SWAT team like? Um, again, being the 11th largest police department in the country and running a full-time SWAT team. At the time, we had uh, 17 members, like 16 or 17 members when I got there, and it, the team grew to 24 members by the time I left. Just incredible. That's awesome. The tempo that you have to keep up physically, <laughs> mentally, mm-hmm. emotionally, tactically. It's a lot of training. A lot of training seems like that would be the most training intensive portion of the police department is SWAT because you're kind of I mean <clears throat> it, it's a basically mission based 
you got to go do this thing exactly. or this is happening. You got to go intervene here in between there. You're training for every possible scenario that you could be in. You're you know? training for bus assaults, train assaults, plane assaults, hostage rescues, um, barricaded persons, suicidal persons. Uh, I mean, everything, the gamut is out there. That's awesome. What was the, what was your favorite thing about that? It was uh, bringing things to a peaceful and successful resolution at the end of the day, getting people out of houses or businesses, getting everybody out alive. and mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that was the only SWAT team for all of Austin. It was. That was it. So we worked very closely with Travis County has a SWAT team that's also full-time. Oh, okay. Uh, Texas Department of Public Safety. And then all the outlying areas, like Hayes County has a SWAT team, Williamson County. That's Round awesome. Rock Police Department. So, yeah, we had a really good time. Talk about <laughs> police officers that love what they do. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, it's one of the safer things because I know going into it. So I'm getting a call out, and I but I know going into it that you have a gun and you're barricaded in a house. Unlike patrol officers that are going up and knocking on a door and not knowing what's behind that door. Yeah. Or walking the, up to a car. Right. We oh, have the man. benefit of coming Ooh. out. Yeah. With advanced training, tactics, advanced equipment, vehicles to deal with a problem that we know is dangerous. Yeah. But it's contained for the most part. Wow. But yeah, amazingly. So you loved that? Loved it. And you loved working with the dogs, the canine part. That And that was, you did a couple of years of canine and then SWAT. Yeah. So well, I did a couple of months with canine before, months, before okay. I was moved over to the SWAT team. But That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so what's... Uh, What's the next step for you? Did you, I mean, did you want to leave SWAT team? I did, not did but you just the, wanted to be there forever. <laughs> at the period when I was on the SWAT team, I met my wife and ended up getting married while I was a sergeant on the SWAT team. And uh, at some point decided I was going to take a leap and take the lieutenant's exam. And uh, I was lucky enough to score number two on that and get, two. Pro- get promoted and Moving up. <laughs> go from working on the SWAT team and having – just an amazing amount of uh, fun and training and equipment to go on a night shift patrol back in East Austin. Oh, wow. So you, even though like you became Lieutenant, now you're Lieutenant over like, you're kind of back at square one in a lot of ways, right? You're back on patrol. Back on patrol. You're the new guy again. So you're the least tenured Lieutenant in a department of that size. And you're going to night shift patrol, which ended up being a, unbelievable blessing getting to go back out and you're touching young police officers fresh out of the academy up to your most seasoned street cops out there and being able to be with them every day and see the fun that they had going out and chasing bad guys and keeping people safe is really amazing that's awesome so what part of what part of austin was that in because swat team you're over like the whole thing airport you're definitely at the airport what part of what kind of was the region you were in at that point? So I was back in East Austin, which was Central East Area Command at the time. And that was kind of the rougher part of Austin, right? It was. It was kind of starting to transition a little bit. That's when uh, you had people coming in and buying up real estate along the I-35 corridor and then into East Austin. They are starting to make some changes. Mm-hmm. And I walked into a drug market initiative that we were doing over there as a area command that it, you know towards the end of my time over there we had a very successful uh project of 
getting our open air drug market closed down once and for good. How do you do that? It was bringing in stakeholders from the business community, the prosecution, the district attorney's office, the community itself, and then those offending. So you have people that are getting arrested for minor possession cases. And instead of prosecuting them, you offer them an out, some restorative justice, uh, deferred prosecution. If you go get help and you stay clean, then we'll let your charge go away. And that's to the district attorney's office. So ended up being a great thing, a great project for us. At the end of the day, it's not about making arrests. It's about making your community safer right? overall. And, and that was really a way in which we did it. Man, that seems um, like it was pretty uh, – I mean, that seems kind of like thinking outside the box on something like that. Or kind of like the drug courts is what that kind of sounds like almost. Like we get this particular kinda. problem – that it's going to take a particular way to get out of this. Right. And I mean, we can't just like arrest our way out of this issue. Absolutely. He's talking about kind of the first level of, of a intervention, so to speak. We know we can't keep building prisons and just throwing people in prisons. Well, kind of back to the wire. Um, were you uh, going after not just the guy selling, but the guy that connected the seller? Were you going up that chain very much? Or were you just... You, you know, in your uh, responsibilities, you were just kind of dealing with the street level guy. In the initiative, we were dealing with the street level guys, and then we we're passing on the information back to narcotics and organized crime to go after the mid to upper level. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you manage this, and then with your intel that you're collecting, that goes up the chain up to the narcotics guys, and they're taking out like the mid level and like, okay, right. are they getting here? Then. Probably they are contacting like the county level sheriff because they're kind of even a bigger umbrella. Probably like how are things moving here? And so we're yeah we're working on the demand part of it. Yeah, without the demand, that's right. Okay, the supply you can have as much as you want, but if you have people come in to look for it, that's crazy. What was the drug at that point? Did it change? Was it still crack cocaine? Or it was, was still crack cocaine okay. pr- predominantly, but there was a little bit of powder cocaine and. Some gotcha. Other stuff. So, um, what kind of what year was this? Uh, where are we at now? Late nineties. No, this is in the two thousands. Two thousands. So probably thirteen or fourteen. Okay. Oh wow. Okay. We're already up to here. Was it, well at that point wasn't meth a big deal or not so much in Austin? Uh, meth was a big deal, but not in that corridor of Austin. Gotcha. It's more probably suburban and rural. Probably down in central Texas, maybe. Yeah, well, it's just different parts of town. You would have uh, methamphetamine more prevalent than other areas. That's crazy. Yeah. So you do lieutenant for a little bit? I did lieutenant on patrol. Uh, then I went back to organized crime for a little bit, for about a year, a little bit over. And How much went- organized crime really is in Austin, though? I mean, like, what? Do you, what's your, How do you define organized crime? Like, just your normal gangs and kids up to no good in the neighborhood so in organized crime we would have uh gangs street gangs street narcotics major narcotics um human trafficking oh okay uh, career offenders so all that was under the same umbrella okay gotcha gotcha and then those we were working with our federal partners fbi dea atf wow that's awesome what was that like uh great yeah Great partnership in Central Texas, and I found that up here, which is one of the more present uh, pleasant surprises coming up here, is 
there's a lot of interagency cooperation, but there's also a lot of really good cooperation with our federal partners, which we have to have each other to be successful. So eventually you become assistant police chief, right? Right. And was that, is that another test or is that just uh, you work your way up into it? Um, so that's, you're at the discretion of the chief of police and I was a lieutenant in internal affairs when I was appointed to an assistant chief position. Um, very scary for me because as a lieutenant, you're skipping over a rank of commander. So you're bypassing that rank and then being appointed to an assistant chief. How do you think that happened? Uh, I don't want to <laughs> <Come laughs> even want to get in the head of <laughs> my former boss, but I'm glad that he took the leap of faith. Yeah, well, you keep saying you're lucky, but it's like you don't win the lottery like over and over and over. Like there's some aptitude or some drive or something, you know, you're playing the game right or something, you know. You know, and that's kind of what it sounds like if you're if you're being picked and appointed like somebody saw something like the, the chief of police definitely said okay this guy this guy's in you know i need this guy yeah he, he saw something it, i like to think that my work ethic has always been very high i keep myself to a very high standard um but i do tell people that there's nothing special about me i'm just a guy like you are it's a combination of hard work, being in the right place at the right time, having some amazing mentors and teachers along the way, and then just for whatever reason, there there was something that I had that the chief at the time thought that would be beneficial to his team. So was there any resentment from people you passed over? Because there were probably a couple of guys that had been there looking at you oh, like, yeah. why did this guy get the promotion? I'm sure there there was. I mean, human nature, right? Right. Sometimes that happens. Um, I think most importantly for me, it was just to let people know that it doesn't change who I am as me being frank. Um, and again, we can't carry out business and keep our community safe and keep our department effective if we're having the fracturing of of people, especially in leadership positions. Yeah, I think you only get there by having good relationships with people. I mean, pe people can be a little uh, miffed, but if you've spent the time building those relationships, yeah, it's not a big deal. It's for the bet, you know, it's for the betterment of the team. We're here to make the team better, and if me being here makes the team better, then we should all be all about it. You know, so it is, and you can't take business personally. It's just business. Yeah, you know. That's true. So you're doing that for two years. What is what are your responsibilities at that point? I mean, you've kind of it kind of sounds like you've done almost everything in the police department in Austin. So I had the uh, South Patrol Bureau, and okay. then I had the airport again, and I had special operations again, and awesome. uh, highway enforcement, which was our motorcycles, <clears throat> uh, commercial vehicle enforcement, all of that, and our air support unit, which was our helicopters and fixed wing that's aircraft. awesome <laughs> yeah so that was cool so i ended up having a, about 600 police officers and then a large quadrant of the south part of the city so you're afraid of heights would you ever get up in the helicopter so funny thing about <laughs> me is I, I love flying in helicopters love the helicopter i love flying in just helicopters. ladders not in yeah. ladders i guess it's outside heights right yeah. helicopters are cool people don't realize it is not like being in a plane it is not it is so much cooler i mean you're floating and also the altitude that you're at doesn't everything looks like a toy right everything looks like 
It does. It looks different. It's and, you know, it's crazy. It's not it's not normal. Being able to fast rope out of them and rappel at them when I was on the SWAT team is a whole another level. Did of, you do this? So, cool. how, so explain what a fast rope is, because so I know what it is. But yeah, yeah, basically a thick rope that uh, is thrown out the side of the of the helicopter, and you're typically about 25, 50 feet off of the ground, and you just grab hold of it. Uh, you don't put any brakes on. You just slide down it, kind of like going down a fireman's pole. Yeah. If you're kind of trying to make a correlation. Like you got it. gloves on, you're hanging onto the rope. And you have gloves, and you're just holding it close to your body and sliding down. Yeah, you're like five stories up, possibly. And you and go pretty fast. Yeah, that's yeah. why it's called fast, fast roping. Fast yeah. <laughs> yeah. Out of a helicopter. And you were totally cool with that. You're like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's the fun part. Oh, that's awesome. So I think it's uh, you just don't like ladders. That's what it is. Yeah, ladders outside. Ladders I'm not hanging outside. Christmas lights. <laughs> That's awesome. So, when is Denton getting a helicopter? Do we have? We don't have a helicopter. We don't have a helicopter. We gotta get one. I would love one. Yeah, let's get one. I'll I'll make it happen. <laughs> I'll, I'll pull some strings for you. <laughs> good, good luck. Good luck. Yeah, surely we've got money for that somewhere. No, we're blessed. We have a great working relationship with the DPS, so they bring us air support whenever we need it. Awesome. Where are they out of? Where do they fly out of? Where are they based out of? The I alliance, don't maybe, or I don't think they? they're an alliance. I don't know where they're that based point. out okay. of. All I know is when when we need them, they come very quickly. It's awesome. So you, you've got a little bit of an interesting story on how you ended up in Ditton. I mean, you kind of randomly got a job offer. Kind of, kind of tell that story. What was that about? How'd you get here? Um, so I was, I'd been an assistant chief for a while, for about two and a half years or so, and I was up in uh, Boston for a long term police management course and before i left i'd seen the posting for the denton police chief and i kind of half-heartedly shown it to my wife and i go hey what do you think about denton and at first she was like eh. she's like where where yeah, like, is it we, she's like we know nothing about denton we don't know anybody in denton why would we want to go there so i'm at this school and i get a, fo- a phone call one day and it's uh, someone asking if i had thought about applying for this job and I told him I hadn't really thought about it, but I would think about it. And how long do I have? They're like, you have about 48 hours before it closes. So from Boston, I called my wife, and luckily I had a resume already built and a cover letter kind of done. So she emailed that to me, and thank goodness for technology, right? I was able to get it, uh, finish it off, and then put my application in while I was actually at the long-term school in Boston. And uh, by no stretch of the imagination that I think I had a chance. There was 112 people that, that applied for this position. Really? And being here now, I totally understand why. Wow. This is an amazing place. It's the greatest city and, on the planet. Uh, as I started going through the process, I made it past step one and a step two and then step three. And then at, uh, at the end of it, the city manager made a trip to Austin to do his last vetting and gave me a job offer. And then the... The real shock set in. Like, <laughs> you know, I got See, the job now. What do I do? Oh no! It's like buying a car. Like, okay, here's the keys. Now, what do you do with it? Yeah. Or it's like the dog that catches the car. It's like, yeah. oh no, what do I do now? Yeah. <laughs> so, what was the hardest part of that process? Because I mean, there were. I mean, I remember it was down to like ten or twelve, and I mean, I got asked to sit in on like a group inter. I mean, me like nobody off the street like to sit down on a group interview of and i'm like 
But and that's I what we need. But I checked the time. At the time. I mean, it was like a 12-hour deal. And I'm like, yeah. that's crazy. And that was only one part of the interview process. You yeah, know? It was an extremely uh, thorough process. We went yeah. through several panel interviews with the um, city leadership. You had members of the faith community. You had members of LULAC and NAACP. You had uh, just community members by large council members we had a community forum that was open to everyone to come in and and ask us one-on-one questions it was not an easy process i mean you handled it fine obviously i mean you were it was any part of it like i don't know if i want to be here or was every part of it like oh this is really cool i want to be here i think the vetting process really made me want to be here because if the city manager was taking that much time and attention to making the process competitive and hard and thorough, then I knew that this would be a place that I want to be. And then coming down to the square, I was totally sold. Yeah. It's pretty awesome down there. Yeah. It's very, very cool. So you get the call that you're the pick. And I remember one thing I remember before they uh, had made the call, there was a, there, I heard a little bit of chatter about how the, and I was like oblivious to the candidates. I was like, just tell me when we hire one. And you know, like, um, but there was a lot of chatter about how there was a, the guy from Austin, like when they went down to talk with the other, the, the folks he worked with, it was a hundred percent. Like they were, I mean, love the guy. I mean, everyone in Austin is like, uh, very enthusiastic about who you were as a police officer and um it was like i mean couldn't have hit it out of the park more by asking i mean you go to the go to the source and at any time like anybody who had any sort of beef with you as tiniest bit had the opportunity to throw you under the bus and (laughs) you know no harm right? right you know and nobody did is what is what the message was so and what's also funny is not funny, but like when they did announce it, it showed up in the paper and got the announcement. I like saw the name and started kind of researching like who you were. And, uh, you know, I got a Facebook, like what's, what's, what's this guy up to on Facebook? And the only thing I saw was people were just like, so sad you were leaving. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, going away parties and everyone's just like i mean it was like multiple just like oh we're losing someone i was like dude sorry guys <laughs> now we yeah. get him you know it, was, it felt pretty good to have someone uh like you come in with that much uh goodwill you know uh it really was great to have you uh come in so you get the keys to the ditton car you walk in What's that like? Because you're coming from completely outside. And that's one thing that like Todd kind of got some grief for was he, he made a statement about he's not looking for someone to come in and like change things up or like mix it up or reorganize. Uh, and I think he also made a comment about he's not looking for someone internally. We're looking for someone, you know, the best of the best is what we're looking for. Kind And he kind of caught some grief for that. But you walk into the situation, you're not, you didn't come up in the ranks here. Right. It's all new people. How do you manage that? How did you, how did you handle that? It is absolutely overwhelming. 
Um, I think there's a misnomer in the general public that cops are cops are cops no matter where they're at, and we openly embrace each other. Uh, change for human beings is difficult. Change for police officers is incredible. So coming into an organization where I had no roots planted, I knew no one, there's no alliances, it's really overwhelming, to say the least. Because you're starting over with everybody. Exactly. I mean, they know absolutely nothing about me other than what they've heard. Um, some people are, are happy and excited about the the new guy coming into town, but then some people are not so happy and excited, which I don't hold it against them, right? You've got some amazing people here in the Denton Police Department, which I quickly learned. We have a lot of talent. It's growing that talent, cultivating it, and hopefully – you know, the biggest, um, I think the biggest point of my success here would be that whenever my time up is here, that someone from in, internal become the next chief. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So, yeah. So your time here, you've been here, shoot, a year? A year and a week. Oh, I can't believe it's only been a year. It seems like, it seems like you've been here for several years. I mean, it's because you've gotten a lot done. What's kind of the, the thing you're proudest of that you've accomplished while you've been here? I'm really proud of the collaboration that we've had with the community. We have started external focus groups where we're bringing in all segments of the community to help shape what the Denton Police Department looks like. Um, we also recently started inviting different stakeholders to the table when we have internal postings for certain jobs. Any jobs that we have that touches externally, like our sex assault investigator that we just had a process for, we brought in our stakeholders from outside the police department, including a survivor of sexual assault, to sit on that selection panel to help us do that. Um, our special events coordinator, we just had a process with, with that, and we brought in our partner agencies from Parks Department, the Fire Department, and uh, to sit on that panel. I, I just don't think you can get enough different views and perspectives of what the job should entail and what the people coming into those jobs should have then to get as wide a, a set of eyes on that process as we can and i mean there's a lot of community involvement in denton oh my goodness like people really really love this town and love being involved yep. and i've talked about this with other folks and other podcasts like the thing about denton is it all it always feels like you can just get involved with whatever you want to there's absolutely just no barrier for showing up and taking part one thing i remember is probably one of the biggest uh uh i mean tragic events that you had to deal with this this year was the um uh, sarbesh was yes it, uh yep. the the kid that got uh i mean i guess i guess he wandered off locked himself in a car Right. And, and it ended up, I mean, being, being found, passed away in, the, in that car the next day. But there was a, I remember there was a tweet. Uh, I forget what it was, but I was like, I'm a couple of blocks away and I'm, I know that area. And it was like, hey, any, anyone who wants to check cars show up right here and you can like help out with the search. And I was like, okay, like, you know, I'm probably be mean about 20 other people. Yeah. Now there's like 200 people out there just. How can we help? How can we take part? You know, how how can we uh, help, you know, make this better? You know, that was pretty awesome to see. That I was mean, incredible. It was a, such a tragic, hard thing to go through as a community. And you could tell 
I mean, there were a lot of people just really torn up about that. Um, but being able to do something, I think, helps the tragedy lessen, you know. And I think that's what—that's kind of a magical thing about Denton is like you can really be involved. Um, but what what was that kind of like? Not to like get into anything like uh, too deep on it, but like that was a tough thing. That was a big event for the city to go through oh, and you're yeah. kind of the center of it and um what was that like going into it when you got the call or how does that play out as the the in your position for you you know we get missing kids calls kind of semi-routinely right so in the very beginning i'm thinking it's going to be a kid that wandered off and we're going to find him very quickly because i was actually walking into another event when it first started and as I'm leaving the event, I'm getting updates that they're calling more resources over, which is now leading me to believe that, you know, either A, there's something nefarious that's going on, i.e. he's been kidnapped, or B, we just haven't found him, but the clock is ticking. And uh, the Texas heat people take for granted sometimes because you and I are, are adults. Our bodies can withstand a lot. But, uh, you know, personally having small kids, and knowing that Sarbesh was very young, the clock is ticking and it's ticking very rapidly. So being able to mobilize as many people as we did very short time and get a search going, and con we conducted four or five pattern grid searches from the time I got out there until almost midnight. And by the time I left at, at midnight to go and try to get a couple hours of sleep, I was leaning more towards something bad. There's not a positive outcome. Yeah. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, the clock is, you're right. Like, I mean, it's like, that. what's that show? There's a show that's like 48 hours or something. That's like the highest probability of, like, something bad happens if you like if you can't find right the, the kid in a certain amount of time. Like, the odds go up dramatically about something bad. Um, so yeah, I mean, you don't get alerted initially for like every missing kid because exactly. some, sometimes it's like, okay, well, yeah, we found him at the neighbor's house. Right. Like parents just kind of freaked out. They get on the wrong bus or, yeah, or whatever the case may be. But yeah. So you're coordinating what, what other, uh, uh, organizations or what, what other resources were you calling in? Cause I know there was the helicopter that was like hovering well, I'll, I'll like tell all you, day right there. Yeah. You know? What was really incredible about that that was actually our media partners out of dallas and fort worth that had those helicopters up and they took it upon themselves yeah just to sit up there wow um so who else was out there was there a oh, county gosh. sheriff or the when you talk about partner agencies and resources we had every foreseeable resource in the metroplex out there yeah we had federal partners state partners Texas Rangers, Texas DPS. Wow. Um, we had offers from the game warden, all the surrounding agencies. Yeah. We had uh, civilian search and rescue dogs out there, and then the community by and large. You're yeah, talking, yeah. I mean, it's crazy because they also they they searched UNT, the entire UNT campus. UNT PD was very actively involved. Yeah. Obviously, Denton Fire, a huge partner for us. We had so many resources out there and i think that's what uh, hurt the most is we had upwards of 300 people yeah and we couldn't find them throwing everything they had at the situation yeah. and still like and I, to 
I mean, the way it ended was the next morning someone goes and gets in their car and right. Sarbesh is dead in the back of the car, basically. Right. I can't imagine being that person. Like, uh, man, reading that in the morning, man, what a what a blow. Oh, it is. I can't imagine. How do you how do you deal with your your I mean, all those people and all those resources. How yeah. do you go to them and explain to them like, hey, didn't turn out the way we, we wanted it to. Like, what are we going to do? That is one of the toughest press conferences I've ever had. Yeah. Um, and I get the the perception that the police should be able to, to bring these little ones home into a successful resolution. Obviously, every cop that was out there was impacted. Uh, cops that weren't out there were impacted. Uh, you you know you've got uh, a bunch of our younger officers have young kids. Yeah, a lot of our command, all of our command staff, except for one, has kids as well. So yeah. I mean, you can't not have a human face to it. Yeah, literally, because we can all reflect on that. Yeah, that's tough. So coming out of that, though, I mean, <clears throat> you, you you're motivated to oh yeah look back like uh, what could we have done? Yeah. Like, what are you going to, what do you enact post that happening that like, okay, we're going to learn from this and make sure this never happens again. Like, what do you do? So one of the, the uh, most pleasant phone calls I ended up getting was from an organization called kids in cars and cars.org um, out of Kansas city area. They were calling to talk about that case literally the next morning, right after we found Sarbesh. And what I thought was going to be a very confrontational phone conversation turned into be amazing yeah so from that we uh like what do they do what does that organization do? so they track hot car deaths with kids across the country and if you go to their website there's a lot of literature and for me because i was second guessing ourselves uh beating our beating myself up because we're supposed to bring these kids home that's our job right but listening to them and they're telling me that uh Every year, there's a great number of kids Sarbesh's age that get themselves into cars, get themselves locked into cars, and then die as a result of that. It's not um, an anomaly whatsoever across yeah. the country. And in fact, this year, we've had two in the Metroplex of kids that young, and they track from age zero up to 14, and there are some one-year-olds that get themselves into cars and locked in there. Wow. So it's not uh, it's not uncommon, but from that, we have really gone in and torn up our missing persons protocols, our search protocols, our response protocols, and we've put together one of the most comprehensive uh, policies, procedures that I can think of. What are some of the big pieces of that? Like, how do you how do you change what you're doing in a way that that makes it better? Because I figure. I mean, just as normal Joe on the street, like man, the police have been doing this. Like they, they've got it. They've got all the tricks of the trade right. right now. Like, what's some of the things that you saw that weren't getting done in your uh, SOP that, or you know, standard operating yeah. procedure that added, or that you, you know, is going to make that situation turn out better. So it's really about leveraging resources by doing it more structured manner. So where we had all the volunteers showing up, we're going to sequester them in that area. We're going to have one police officer be a volunteer coordinator who's going to be at our briefing over in our command post that's going to get the briefing and then go back there and pair 
civilians up with police officers and firefighters to send them out in structured teams. They're going to have uh, a list that they go down, and they're going to notate every person they contact, every car they search. Um, they're going to have a, a ink marker, a paint marker, that they're going to mark every car they search, whether they were able to get physically inside it or not. So practical. Yeah. We're going to mark every house that we touch. We're just going to track everything that we touch so we can conclusively say that we have literally searched everywhere. Yeah. And uh, if there's cars that we can't get into, <clears throat> there'll be a certain marking on it. We'll try to get in contact with the owner through renter registration checks and anything we can. But we're going to do everything we can do yeah. to get into those cars. And th- I mean, that's one of the things that really stuck out to me about just who you are and your character is that you were asked, I think you were probably asked the question at that press conference, maybe like, d- can you confirm you checked every single car? And you were like, you know, I can't confirm that we <laughs> checked every single car. Like, you know, that's pretty, uh, I mean, that is, that takes quite the amount of character and honesty to show up uh, at that moment and say, we, we, I can't confirm that that's tough, you know, but the best part about folks with character is they say this, like, okay, how do we never do that again? You know, right. like, and you're fixing it and wow, what a practical thing. I would have never, never have thought of that. Well, I mean, uh, you just, know, we, just be practical about it. Like, okay, there's a yeah. marking for like, we open this up, we've searched it. Right. Like, this one's clear exactly yeah but having 200 plus civilians out there that came to volunteer we we couldn't or i guess we didn't structure how they were going to search and how that we're going to track their searches so there's no telling how many hands from both civilian fire police were right there and may or may not have tried to open that door yeah but we can't conclusively come back and say that oh man that's crazy crazy and you don't know until you until you know that that horrible thing happens right what a horrible thing but well i you know i don't i can't uh, i can't say enough how as awful as it was it was also you saw people really rise above in the community and you really did it could have could have been tragedy would have been compounded had it not been for your character so uh thank you for that thank you for for being who you are um so that that's awesome so what do you see in the future i mean we we, we've had conversations before about uh you know we see things that happen with police around the country i mean it's shooting in fort worth a couple of weeks ago like for the thousand things the cop does right it's the one bad thing that gets all the press exactly and you see things like that just tear a community apart um do you see i mean do you see that that's probably probably a horrible way to ask that question but like i want to do everything i can for who i am and my community who i'm around to make sure you know the society doesn't fall apart should should something bad happen right yeah How, how do you how do you see the average citizen in Denton preparing for uh, the way the way something bad could happen in our community or like what what do you see as the future stability of Denton how do we get there I guess is the question Um, 
you know, one of the amazing things about Denton is there's so much community support already for not just law enforcement, but public safety in general. Yeah. But I have been preaching this before I got here, and I've really been preaching it the last week and a half, that no longer are we separated from Ferguson, Missouri, or anywhere else on the map. You're talking about two very high-profile incidents right on the both sides of us in the last That's year. right, because the Dallas thing just concluded as well, The and that was a police officer that went into not her apartment. Right. And unloaded a clip into someone, basically. And there's a, Ugh. you know, there's tragedies happening all the time, but it's yeah. very important that we understand that every decision we make as cops has a lasting impact. Words matter. How we treat people absolutely matters. And it's more important in times that things are going good to continue to build relationships, strong, meaningful, lasting relationships with the community. So should we have the unfortunate circumstance of having a tragedy happen here that at least we have some understanding that, you know, cops are fallible. They're not imperfect. You're being policed by human beings. The same people that you grew up with, that you live next door to, that you go to church with. Yeah. Um, and the expectations on law enforcement has gone up tenfold in the last five to 10 years. We're, you know, being criticized for every decision that these cops make on the street in a split second. It's very easy for us to go back and review those and slow them down and pause them or re- rewind and look at it a hundred thousand times and tell them that they could have done it perfectly had they only done this. Yeah. But understanding that we're policed by human beings, we have to do everything that we can as leadership and not just police leadership, but community leadership and city leadership, which we're also blessed to have to get them all the training, equipment, education, and support that they need to go out and keep you safe every day. And I think we're very fortunate to have that already here. How big of a factor is training in something like that? You know, I don't know anything about the incidents. I'm not going to talk about the two that happened close by here, but I can tell you just in general speaking that – the reason that we have so many general orders, the reason that we have so much training is really to prepare cops to do the job the proper way and to protect them, protect them civilly, protect them criminally. So if we're offering all of that and we're doing as much as we can, you're still not going to be 100% all the time. You're still going to have mistakes made. Yeah. And if they're mistakes of the mind and not mistakes of the heart, I think the community can can rally and support cops. Yeah, and I mean, just think about, you could have the most perfectly trained, well-meaning, perfect person who... Absolutely. Kids have had the flu all week. He's coming down with the flu. He's on cough medicine. And it's that split-second decision that is not the perfect decision that costs a life or property or something. And now he's, he's the bad guy. You know, it's like, we almost need to be more yeah and i think i think to your point i think the it's like the community aspect of it is like when we're involved in each other's lives then we can look at something like that and not just assume the worst whereas right. this, this guy you know he's a he's a you know a sociopathic you know psychopathic killer you know um, that's probably not going to be the case you know um but i mean so, when you think about that there's almost a million police over there's eighteen thousand police departments, law enforcement agencies across this country, almost a million law enforcement officers. They're having almost 1 billion contacts a year. 
And what you don't hear about on a daily basis is when your Denton police officer showed great restraint in not shooting somebody that they very lawfully could have for taking the extra moment to talk to them, to communicate with them successfully, and bring it to a peaceful resolution. Those things you don't hear about. Yeah, they don't make the news. They don't. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because you have almost a billion of those positive contacts a year across the country, and you, you hear about the fraction that albeit we have our missteps and let's face it, American law enforcement has not always been on the right side of history. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a balancing act. Hold us accountable when we fall short, but lift us up when we do well, uh, support us, give us the things we need and then hold us to account. So what's kind of the biggest challenge facing the Denton police department right now? Growth. Same thing as facing the city. You know, the great thing about living in Denton is it's Denton and it's growing. And there's so much opportunity here. The bad thing about it is it's growth. And the infrastructure could be overrun very quickly. Police department resources can be overrun very quickly. So we're preparing for that. We have a group in right now that's just starting to do a comprehensive study on our police department from top to bottom. So we can present council, hopefully by spring, a plan to not stay with growth, but get ahead of it. And is that a mechanism of just pure funding or? Well, it's not just pure funding, but I want to get good raw data to take to council. I don't ever want to go because I'm very cognizant that every decision we make has an impact on you, the taxpayer. And we want to make sure that we're being financially responsible and we're not just asking for things for the sake of doing it. So I want to make sure that we take a comprehensive plan to them that's based and rooted on fact and we get their buy-in. And like I said, we stay ahead of the growth and continue to be the police department that we're also proud of. So one of the biggest parts about growing is we've seen a growth in the, the population downtown that aren't housed right now. Right. That's living downtown, working downtown. That's probably the number one thing that I've seen people talk about or be concerned about over the past like three or four years yes where are you at on that what's the what's the number one thing you guys need to be doing and what's the number one thing we need to be doing as a community to, to take a bite out of that one so right now actually yesterday we just posted two internal positions for full-time homeless outreach officers we're about to uh hopefully assign a sergeant to be a full-time special projects person who's going to be looking at um, mental our mental health program and how we can make that better more robust across the organization training uh, collaboration with the community and our stakeholders so i would say for the community by and large it's not a this is not a problem we can arrest ourselves out of as a community be very cognizant that if not for the grace of god you or i could be out there and don't judge everyone based on them being homeless because you've got 21, 22-year-old kids coming back that have had several, multiple combat deployments that are coming out with PTSD and um, um, brain injuries, TBIs, and they're homeless. Uh, you've got people that are addicted to drugs. You've got mental illness that impacts the homeless community. So you've got all these things from society that are interwoven in that. And then you just have single parents that have kids that have to make the decision. Are you going to pay your electric bill or are you going to pay your car note? 
and they end up being homeless living in their car because they can't afford to do both. So I think as a community, we have to continue to come together and put forth really comprehensive plans in addressing the root cause that makes you homeless and not homelessness just broad, in the most broad of terms, because what's impacting you is different than what's impacting me. So. Yeah, being homeless isn't against the law. You know, Absolutely like what, not. What crime are you committing by not being housed? Right. You know, that's something a lot of people forget about. Well, Austin is dealing with it now in a major way. I mean, they outlawed or they legalized camping. I didn't even know it was legal. But, I mean, they're kind of getting overrun. Last time I was there, I was like just shocked at the 